0: This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Hey guys, Toby Mathis here with the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, and I have Neil Bawa on again. Neil, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me back on the podcast. We had such an incredible blast last time. People are still talking about the last time we did this podcast together, so I'm super excited to be back.
0: Yes, you had an absolute great podcast here. It just it took off and lots and lots of eyeballs over 100,000 people. But so much of what we talked about was relevant then, and hopefully people were able to utilize it and help themselves because we kind of predicted what was going on. We didn't predict the banking, but we did. I think we specifically talked about the Fed breaking things and what's going to break first. And now we know. <laughs> Yeah. So the Fed broke the banking system and then we're gonna we're gonna gear up and focus in on real estate and whether your real estate's safe. And so I really wanted to zero in on those topics. So I'm gonna hand this to you, Neil. What happened in your I'm not gonna poison you with my thoughts. What happened in your opinion and what's the long term effect?
1: Well the honest answer is that the Fed poisoned the banking system. And they did that by providing the banking system and the U.S. consumer, with such an extraordinary amount of money in late 2020, early 2021, all the way to the end of 2021 and into 2022, the flood of money meant that many people made wrong decisions. You know, real estate, we see on the multifamily side, prices dropping because those people went and bought properties that were for $75 million that were $45 million a year before. Why? Because they could do it. Money was cheap. And so they could, they could put in a higher amount of mortgage. And so they, they made those mistakes. And then we had banks. Banks were flooded with enormous amounts of deposits in the 2021-2022 timeframe. And many banks, not all of them, luckily, but dozens, if not hundreds of them, made the decisions to take that money and invest it into non-liquid investments. For example, treasury bonds. So you go in there, you, you take that money, hundreds of billions of dollars, and you buy treasury bonds. And those bonds, they don't come due for a number of years, some of them for as much as eight, nine years from now. And the problem is, after that, as the Fed started to raise interests, right? So they started to raise the interest rate, raise the interest rate, the rate, the price, the treasury rates also went up. So the treasury rates went up from 1% to 2% to 3% to 4%. So today, when you buy a treasury bond, you're getting 4% on a 10-year treasury bond. You're getting 2.5% on a two-year bond. So people want to buy those bonds they don't want to buy the bonds that the banks banks already bought that they are holding so technically if the banks were forced to sell any of those bonds early sell them well before they they mature then they would take a huge loss because the market doesn't want to buy those bonds so you have to discount them and so we've ended up in this situation where the U- united states banking system now has over 600 billion dollars of losses or potential losses on their balance sheets that you know if they're forced to get them off of their balance sheet, would be incredible losses. Now, keep in mind, this is not like 2008. In 2008, when a bank gave you a loan on a 2,000-square-foot property, if you stopped paying, the bank had to take the property back. Now, the bank had to basically put that property on their balance sheet, and so they had to go out and get an assessment of what that property was worth today. So maybe the loan was $500,000, but the property is only worth $300,000. Well, the bank immediately had to say, we've lost $200,000. But with treasury bonds, you don't actually have to show any losses because there's nothing wrong with the bond itself. There's only a problem if you're faced to sell early, which is why it's very important for the Fed and the banking system now to control any kind of contagion where people feel like their money's not safe. So they basically run towards a bank like First Republic and say, hey, we need to get all of our money out. Because if First Republic bought a bunch of those bonds, now it has to sell them immediately today to find people's money. And that's where the losses are. So this is one of those cases of there's control. The Fed and the Treasury Department have to control negative buzz very closely. And they don't just have to do that for a matter of weeks. A lot of people are like, this could be over in two or three weeks if you know it calms down. No, it's just going to come up again because whenever there's contagion or talk about the next bank, well, then the issue comes up again because now that bank could still have losses. And if that bank has to declare losses, that bank goes down, the Fed bails it out. Now it's the cycle starts over again so now you have dozens or hundreds of banks that they need to figure out how to deleverage and it's not an easy process to do that and and i i'll have some speculations on that but that's what's happening normally when there's a run on a bank one bank goes out of business you know tough luck for the stockholders of that bank the fdic makes most people whole you know up to a $250,000 limit and you move on you can't do that right now because that first bank tripping could lead to the next one tripping which could lead to the next one tripping so we are in a very unusual environment. It's a very problematic environment. The Fed has to figure out what to do. And I believe that what the Fed is going to be forced to do, they don't want to do it, is that they will be forced to cut interest rates much sooner than they had planned.
0: I'm with you 100%, by the way. The way you, you laid that out is exactly how I understand it. It's You're sitting on a, a 10-year bond at 2% that you bought two years ago. So there's eight years to, to matures. And nobody wants it because you can go out and get a 4% bond right now. It's like, why would you get the 2%? So there's no market for it, but that's what the bank has as an asset. Now, they could have done some hedging. They could have done something, but most of these folks were asleep at the wheel and they didn't. So you have somewhere around 200 banks or thereabouts that uh, are susceptible. Uh, really, I mean, it's all banks because like, the banks, it's not your money. You give it to them. They put it on their asset. They put it on their balance sheet. <laughs> People don't realize that. It's not yours. It's the banks. You might be yep. entitled to your deposit, you know, and hopefully you have some FDIC insurance, but it, they didn't put an account that says Neil Bawa, his money, and and it's and it's earmarked. No, your money went on with everybody else's, right? So the banks are different than brokerage houses, and that means, and I've done videos on custodial and all that, but that's, that's not what today is about. Today is, oh, Jiminy Christmas, this is what they did. What's it gonna to do to real estate? And I think you're right. I think the Fed's gonna be forced to backtrack. They created this mess because they said inflation was transitory with it with ignoring the fact that they dumped an extra four to five trillion dollars into the market. Well, it's transitory. What you're gonna you're gonna pull that cash back out? Is that is, you know, because otherwise you just devalued everybody's dollars. How are you gonna fix this? And they started raising interest rates. It seems crazy. So what's gonna happen, Neil? What are we gonna do?
1: Well, I think the first piece of this is it will become obvious in the next 30 to 60 days how much leverage and how much leeway the Fed has. And I'll explain why. So, if you study events like this, 1987, there was an event like this. So, the savings and loan crisis. If you look at Mm -hmm. the 1997 event where in Asia there was a liquidity crisis, we call it the Asian, you know, crunch, uh, currency crunch, and seven or eight countries in Asia went through that in 1997. And then, of course, we, we've learned from 2008 as well. What we find is that these kinds of events are self-fulfilling prophecies. So, think about you know one week ago or ten days ago, there may have been a bunch of Fortune 500 CEOs that were like, "Well, you know, the economy has created 800,000 jobs in the last you know two months. That's a really awesome number. I'm going to keep investing. I'm going to keep hiring. I'm going to keep moving forward rather than pulling back." Well, now none of those fortune 500 ceos are thinking that the events of the last 10 days are a self-fulfilling prophecy because they force all of those ceos to say you know what i may not have funding available if i want to launch a new billion dollar factory or a five billion dollar project i might not have funding available there could be significant liquidity issues in the marketplace because the banks have to step back and i'll explain why the banks have to step back at this point they have to remove liquidity from the marketplace but so now every CEO is aware of that because we were getting all this education from Goldman Sachs and Mer- Merrill Lynch saying, hey, we are going to, we were saying that there was a 35% chance of a US recession in the second half of this year. Now we're saying it's 45. One bank's saying it's 50%. One's saying 65%. So what the banks are saying is because of what happened in the last week, the chances of a recession have increased because banks have to pull back. That reduces liquidity. And when banks reduce liquidity, then that gives less options for businesses to grow. So now we're moving towards a recession. Now, when we, when that happens, guess what happens? When you start moving towards a recession, business activity reduces, right? Cause there's less liquidity available. Well, by itself, that reduces inflation. So in an odd sort of way, the Fed has done something that's really good for the bad and the Fed and really bad for the Fed. They've done something really good because now finally the Fed has broken something and it's, they've broken something very big and not only have they broken it in the US they've actually now got cascade effect, effects with credit suisse suisse being sold at a ridiculously discounted price to ubs right so you know the european bank that was weak and had similar problems they didn't even have direct problems they weren't buying us treasuries but they were buying you uh, they were buying european union treasuries they were buying their treasuries. so same sort of situation that they were in and so that bank has now been sold for a, a you know discount price of 3 billion dollars to a bigger competitor called ubs and so this is contagion. It's spreading. Now, the, the European zone, their, their Fed, their administrators are calling the Fed today saying, we need to calm down. We can't keep raising interest rates at the same rate because what we're doing is we're actually actively increasing the amount of contagion in the market. We're not just clamping down. We're doing the exact reverse. We're actually making it worse because with every quarter point that we raise and every half point that we raise, well, there, this $600 billion that's at risk becomes six fifty then becomes 750 then becomes 800 so every time we raise interest rates we're increasing the amount of money that banks have to now write off of their balance sheets by doing a process called mark to market so from that perspective the fed did something good they broke the market and because of that inflation's going to come down it's going to slow down because every ceo is saying i'm not going to move forward with my 1 billion or 10 billion dollar project in this marketplace we will just go defensive and that's what the market was not doing the fed was trying to get the market to move on to the defensive so our GDP growth would slow down to maybe half a percent or 1%. Well, it's still at 2%. And now the Fed got what it's wanted. On the downside, though, the Fed got what it's wanted by hitting the one sector that the Fed cares about the most. They don't, it's not real estate. It's not stocks. The sector that the Fed cares about the most is the banking system because the Fed has two mandates. Most people think the Fed has one mandate. That's wrong. The Fed has two mandates. One of the mandates is well-known, price stability. They call it price stability. We call it inflation. Same thing. But their primary mandate is the stability of the banking system. Yep. Right? So they, they always have to have the stability of the banking system first and then price stability. Now, because the banking system was completely stable in the last nine months that they were doing all this crazy stuff, they didn't have to look at mandate number one. They were simply focused on mandate number two. And now, the Fed is going to be forced to switch to mandate number one because the banking system is not going to be stable until they bring interest rates down. They, luckily, they don't have to bring them down to you know COVID levels or things like that. But right now, they're at 4.75. I think the system stabilizes when they get back to maybe 3, 3.5. Mm. So now the speed at which they're going to cut interest rates is likely to accelerate, even though I'm expecting that this week, later this week, when the Fed meets, they will still raise interest rates by a quarter point because they have to mm-hmm. make sure that they're not sending contradictory signals to the marketplace. But beyond that quarter point, I, I see it's it, it extremely, extremely difficult for the Fed to raise rates.
0: Yeah, I uh, I look at this and I, I'm frustrated because I still think inflation wasn't, I, I think that there was some supply chain stuff, but I really think it's it follows the M1 money supply. Like if you get a chart out and you look at the real estate, it, it's almost identical. So for me pulling back, yeah, they raised interest rates it didn't seem to do what they thought was going to happen with real estate though. Like they seemed shocked that real estate wasn't going into this downward spiral. And, and and guys like me are like, well, it's because there's so much demand. There's, you know, we're five to 7 million units under built. You still need supply and you have excess demand. So I don't care what you do to it. Like if you're starving, you're going to find a way to get fed. And that's what they were doing in the real estate world. But this is because they dumped so much cash in. So I thought, I thought, Wow, they're doing quantitative tightening. This is going to work. They'll actually take some of that liquidity out. Even though they're raising interest rates and trying to break things, I was hopeful. And now I'm kind of dashed because not only are they no longer tightening, but they, I think they went on a big old dumping spree. I think, I think they just dumped a whole bunch more cash into the market, which is going to cause inflationary concerns. But the good news is, like you said, I think they broke the, broke the uh, banking system because they, uh, they killed their own bond market. It's like,
1: they, like, they, they did. They though- did. Though so I have to say, I'm, I'm very curious. So the FDIC basically pumped $143 billion into the market in the last 10 days, and the Fed mm-hmm. pumped in $165 billion through the discount window. So the total is about $310 billion of brand new money. Yep. I'm very curious to see if any of this money is actually going to reach the market. Because right now, the, the banks are simply asking for money so that they have more liquidity. It, it, they're not doing anything with it. They're not buying anything. They're borrowing to keep. Obviously, you can't do that for the long term because you're not borrowing money for free. You're borrowing it at interest. And right now, interest rates are high. So the Fed is giving you $143 billion. Now you need to pay, I don't know, at 4%, 6 or $7 billion of interest. So the banks don't want to keep that money for a long time. So I'm curious to see, will they lend it out or will they give it back?
0: It's interesting because... It's not like they were losing money. Like these, when, when you have a 10 year bond, you're going to get your money back. It's not like the stock market where it just crashed and you're, it's just today nobody wants it. So there's no market for it. Since nobody wants it, then you, it's like when you were selling real estate during the great recession. It wasn't that your real estate wasn't worth anything. It's just that there was nobody that could buy it. Nobody wanted it because there was so much other stuff out there that was better or they just, you know, they didn't have access to it. So they're basically loaning on that bond, right? They're saying, Hey, you have a 2% coupon. We'll loan it at 4%. So your loss is really that, that 2% until for as long as you need to take it. Like who, who knows how long they'll, they'll need the loan for, but that's a lot better than what they were doing. Cause I think, wasn't it, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank? Didn't they sell a whole bunch of their bonds to JP Morgan and just like get torpedoed on it?
1: I and mean, I think they, sort yeah, of, so. They just- They lost $2 billion that way because they needed liquidity. They needed their depositors. There was a run on the bank, and their depositors wanted money, and they had 24 hours. So they called the biggest bank in America, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Chase says, we're not buying these bonds at face value. We're going to buy them at a discount. Here's our price. And if you want it, we can give you that money immediately. And so they took that money, gave it to depositors, didn't help them because they still went out of business, but they basically took a, a $2 billion loss in a single day because of that. And that's where the Fed is going to be forced to act. I have Mm. absolutely zero belief that this is the last domino to fall because with so many banks having so many issues, it becomes much easier for there to be a bank run. And I want to talk about that, Toby, because we are in a weird sort of environment where Twitter can create bank runs within minutes, right? So How did this happen? Right. So Silicon Valley Bank basically was the banker for everyone in Silicon Valley. I live here. You know, I've had accounts with them before. And so every dot com, big and small had accounts there. And, you know, there's a granddaddy in Silicon Valley. His his name is Peter Thiel, T-H-I-E-L. And he's, you know, he's part of the PayPal mafia. He's, he's a big VC investor. And what he did was he figured out that these people were at risk. And he didn't tweet. He actually wrote a document and he sent it out to his own investors and all of the startups that he was funding. Obviously, five minutes later, that information was on, on, on Twitter and it only took hours for billions to be withdrawn. That's something that the Fed now fully understands. The Fed understands that a single tweet, which has its origin back to Peter Thiel, can completely destroy a bank. And Silicon Valley was doing some really bad stuff. So I think that sooner or later, they would have been sold at a discount price, maybe not a bank run, but they would have been sold at a discount price for the mistakes that they made. But we wouldn't have had the third largest bank failure in US history if we didn't have this tweet. Here's the problem. The next one's going to have a tweet. The one after that's going to have a tweet. So because of the existence of Twitter, the speed at which bank runs now happen is massive. So the Fed is going to be forced to take actions that they didn't have to take 10 years ago. They didn't have to take 20 years ago because it still took many, many days for a bank run to form. Now it takes hours for a bank run to form. So the bank has basically one or two days at most. So it's extremely, extremely problematic in the next 12 months for the Fed to get us through this time frame. So here's what I'm going to predict is going to happen. So they're going to basically stabilize it and then a bank will go under. And when that second bank goes under, now there's going to be a cascade and three, four, five, six are going to go out of business in a day. And then the Fed, in the middle of all of this, will actually cut interest rates on that day. They'll be forced to cut interest rates by 50 or 100 basis points. None of this is really good for the economy. None of this is really good for the banking system as well, because they were making record profits. Keep in mind, banks have been making huge amounts of profit because interest rates were high. Bank of America still only giving me a quarter of a point. But they're able to buy a treasury bond, right, at two and a half percent. So the arbitrage was pretty massive. So bank profits were very high. So this is not good for the bank. But I don't see, I don't see how the banking system survives the next 12 to 18 months for the Fed to gradually bring rates down. We're now going to see, you know, aggressive step downs of rates every time one of these banks goes under. Mm-hmm. I
0: tend to agree with you, and I also, I mean, I look at it saying the Fed definitely brought this about by raising the interest rates so aggressively. Like, I don't think we'd ever seen a this type of raising as quickly as they raised the interest rates.
1: This and is the fastest before. in history. Absolutely, the fastest yeah. in history.
0: And this is why you don't do that. Yeah. Like maybe the Fed will use this as a learning. Like, hey, maybe we won't overreact the other direction too. Like maybe we won't do like in two thousand eight where they just raced to the bottom. And then they just stayed there forever and you could get this free money. The banks were getting it, at 25 basis points. I mean, so basically free money. And uh, you created that environment where like if they hadn't raised the interest rates, we'd be fine, Yep. right? Yep, no, but we'd I have sure. runaway yep. inflation. And again, I still think it's that they dumped so much cash into the economy that they could have done that first and then, you know, slowly raised interest rates. But who am I? I'm not an economist. Now, here's the most important thing. What's this going to do to real estate? If we're talking lowering interest rates, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not a bad thing for real estate. That's a good thing for real estate, right?
1: Well, I'll say it in a different way. So I I don't completely agree, and I'll say why. So I'm going to give you two scenarios. In scenario Mm. number one, Silicon Valley never happened. SVB didn't fail. The world went on as usual, right? And no subsequent bank failed either. So this is an alternate universe. Right, So we're, we're in the metaverse now. This is the alternate universe where SVB didn't fail. I have 100 mm-hmm. percent confidence that we would have seen significant reductions over the next 12 months in single-family and multifamily prices, because I think mm-hmm. that we were beginning to see we were beginning to see discount prices in Western markets, especially the, the five or six Western states that are hit the hardest. We were beginning to see significant discounts there. We hadn't seen much in the Midwest at all.
0: How much is a significant discount, though? Like, like when you say significant?
1: Uh, so California is now at 11% from peak. And the peak was, mm-hmm. for most markets, the peak was either May or June of 2022. So we're, we're like seven or eight months from peak. And so some markets peaked earlier. They peaked in April last year. But pretty much all of them peaked between April and June of last year. And now we're on their way down. So the U.S. has now lost 6% from peak in about eight months. Western markets mm-hmm. have lost 11%, California being the highest, but other markets like, you know, Seattle, you know, as a market, but in general Washington state, Oregon state, Utah, Nevada, and Arizona are other states that have lost maybe 5, 6, 7%. And the big question is, okay, so in this alternate universe if SVB didn't happen, what happens to real estate? My answer is it goes down by another 5 or 6% nationwide and certain mm-hmm. markets, especially bubbly markets in the southeast, uh, in the sun belt, go down by ten percent. That's what was going to happen, right? So to me, Silicon Valley going down is not necessarily that the price of real estate is going to go up. I don't believe that, and i I, I would not say that on air that that the price of real estate is going to quote unquote recover but we we have a massive gain, and that gain is that that five to ten percent decline that we would have seen in the next twelve months. Now you're unlikely to see that. Because what you're going to notice in the next 60 days is that the market will start to you know, to absorb this data from the Fed about potential rate cuts in the second half of the year. And once they absorb that, then every once everyone understands that, then people are like, let's just hold off. Let's not sell our property because it may be possible that prices are going up. I don't think they go up, but I don't think they go down. And I think that's a very, very big deal because 10% in, a, in the market would have been massive. You know, in terms of declines in real estate, I don't think real estate starts to go back up until the Fed cuts interest rates by at least one full percent. You need it to be cut by one full percent for it to become more affordable, and then we have the ability for it to stabilize and start going up. Hopefully, not like 2021 because that was scary and I, it just scared the hell out of me how quickly prices were going up. Um, hopefully, it it rises in a more reasonable way, tracking inflation, four percent, five percent a year, because inflation is not going to come back down to 2%. But that's what we are likely to see. So our big gain is that this hole that we were about to fall into, we're unlikely to fall into. But I I don't believe that you're going to see real estate prices go up for single family or multifamily this year. I think you're going to see prices go up for both sometime in 2024.
0: I think you're right. And I also think that the Fed may end up cutting interest rates significantly depending on how badly this thing snowballs before the end of the year so there's market predictions i think that we're going to be at three percent at the end of the year which is quite a bit different i believe i mean it it seems different than what they were saying before like i think we were looking at topping out at what 4.75 or thereabouts close to five and now there's we were probably yeah go ahead yep
1: so 4.75 to 5 is still the official dot plot every time the fed meets There's a bunch of people that get into a room and they actually have this, they give them a sheet and each each person, each Fed governor says, this is where I think we are going to be in the next 12 months. And they put their dots in and then they aggregate those dots together and then they publish that information. The Fed's official dot plot is that at the end of the year, we'll be at 5%, the 4.75 to 5. But of course, that dot plot was before SVB collapsed. I'm curious to see what the Fed's dot plot is later this week when the Fed meets again, right? So I'm I, I'm positive it's going to be different.
0: Yeah. So so whatever it may be, because I I don't like dating these types of videos. I like looking at it, saying, hey, we can grab good information, apply it to any timeline. But as we're sitting here today, I think you're right. I think the Fed's it's going to be lower, which just says for real estate again, that's a very good thing for real estate if the affordability is better. If at the end of the year, we're sitting at a much lower rate now. Right now, seems like rates have already accepted what the Fed's done and where it was going to be, and they started to go down anyway.
1: Yes. We're beginning to see some decline, right? So so one of the key things that most people don't understand is that the 30-year mortgage, which is what we use for single family, is simply Uh tied to the Fed funds rate. It's not direct. It's very common for the Fed to raise the Fed fund rate. And over the next 30 days, the 30-year fixed declines. So, Fed goes up by half a point and the 30 year ha- goes down by half a point. That's pretty common because they're trying to speculate. They're trying to say, where do we think the Fed is going to be in the next 90 days, in the next 180 days? And they come up with rates on the basis of that. And today will be actually very interesting because last week, the markets, the mortgage markets simply didn't know what to think. But I, I believe that this week, you know, this is the week that, that the Fed's meeting in March, we're going to see a marked decline in the 30 year fixed rate for single family. It could go down as much as 0.5%, which is a huge swing in a week, an absolutely massive swing, especially given the fact that the Fed is actually likely to raise rates this week. Yeah.
0: And we're not saying that. So you're not saying, hey, you know, real estate's going to go boom. What you're saying is it's been going down at a trajectory and it might level off.
1: It, it might of level off and down. have a chance of coming back in 2024, right? So to me, real estate was going down simply because of rates. No other reason. We see extraordinary demand in single family and multifamily. Especially yep. post COVID, on the multifamily side, because the uh, retail and hotel asset class did not do well during COVID, and the office asset class is absolutely being slaughtered. I can't think of any word, and I'm still sugarcoating when I say slaughtered. So, <laughs>
0: and they should, they should continue to get beat up. Oh yes, because I- all the five-year leases expiring, all these leases that were. I mean, I know so many people that run companies and the the, the, the offices are empty and they're just waiting for the expiration of their, de- of their lease. Like they're just keeping a zombie office and then they're losing the space when it comes to.
1: Yeah. I, I think that if there is going to be a real estate crisis, it may not occur this year. It might occur two years from now in the commercial space when we get to the point where offices are at 80% occupancy, because I think most properties can break even. And I think that it's extraordinarily likely that at some point over the next two or three years, we'll hit you know under 80% occupancy. So that's for another podcast because we have time there. But bottom line is multifamily became much more powerful post-COVID when office starts stopped doing well, hotels had their issues, retail had their issues. So there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines and that money is smart money. So they're not investing. They're, they're simply saying, you know what, I'm not going to buy a property when my interest rates are this high. So th- that money is just sitting on the sidelines. I know a lot of single-family people are sitting on the sidelines as well. We've seen a very dramatic decline in investor purchases of single-family rentals, somewhere around 77 78% compared to 12 months ago. That money is sitting on the sidelines. They want to buy, but investors want to cash flow. And right now, the properties are not cash flowing, and that's why they are very slowly declining. We're seeing about a half percent to 1% price decline per month because properties are not cash flowing. Well, now we might start to see that pick up again. But I think I still think we're six months, seven months out from that.
0: So you're telling an investor, keep your powder dry or keep available. Like eventually this thing's going to turn around. Or are you saying if you can, you know, you're going to you're still going to do great in real estate. But understand that it's going to be over a a longer time horizon. There's no there's no quick hits. We're not going to get in and out of a project in the next year. These are going to be long term projects. What, what, What are you telling folks?
1: I'm going to tell you don't buy until Q three because I think that there's a very good chance that you'll still see a lower price by Q three. But where before I was telling people I think that the single family bottom is going to be Q one or Q two of next year, I think now I'm saying the bottom might be as quick as Q four this year. So buy one one quarter before that, because you never really time the bottom. And you know, whether it's real estate or stock markets. Timing the bottom is a foolish exercise. Nobody's actually managed to do it. People think they'd time it. Sometimes they're just lucky. But I think Q3 would be a tremendous time to buy real estate because you can actually get a twofer. And I'm going to actually provide specific advice. Q3 is a good time to buy uh, real estate. But when you're buying a single family home, get yourself lots of extensions, even if you have to pay up for those extensions, because I think that as the Fed cuts prices, You can have a property in contract at Q3 values based on Q3 mortgage rates, and then sort of drag it along for three, four, five months, and then actually lock in your rate based on Q1 rates, which are likely to be much lower than Q3. So fundamentally there, you've created value by simply keeping the property in contract without actually purchasing it. Now, with multifamily, I'm saying the same thing to people, and I'm saying get nine months worth of extensions, even if you have to pay for it. Because I, w- I want to keep dragging that multifamily pro- property in contract for six, seven, eight, nine months, as long as I possibly can, because I'm actually making money by keeping the property in contract. And that's a very rare scenario.
0: And if you're a seller, be aware that they're going to try to drag you because obviously you buy on cash flow. And if, and when you look at it, debt, debt's more, it's more expensive. You have less cash flow that's coming to your bottom line if that debt gets less expensive there's more cash flow which means the value just went up and if you're being forced to get 9 months of getting drug out by uh, by Neil there like you're going to be kicking yourself when the the value of your property's going up and you're giving it to somebody and now it's a discount i'm just teasing on that but 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 i i, I see people that do get in that situation where they're forced to sell and somebody's dragging them along and when the when the market's going down it's like yeah i, I would do it too they're looking for cheaper money if it's dropping every flipping month if they can get you to delay two or three months the value of their property just went up because you buy properties on cash flow. Yep. So uh yep, just be aware, be a big, you know, big boys and big girls and and, and be aware that these things are going on and that that's that's obviously not just going to be Neil. That's going to be anybody who's looking at these things saying, "Hey, the Fed, especially like you said, the Fed governors when they when they meet and they start estimating, if they I mean, the markets are saying 3% into the year, I believe, is what they were doing today. If the Fed backs that up, then I think 100%. I think that Q3, Q4, you're going to have people that are looking at it in the same way you're looking at it, saying, hey, the longer time that I can delay, the, the better off it is for me and my investors. So just be aware.
1: One item I wanted to add on there is something known as spread. I think very few investors understand this critical concept. So- If you look at what the Fed funds rate is today, it's, you know, 4.75 basically roughly, you know, 4.75 to five is the range, but 4.75 is the discount window or close to the discount window. The banks are actually getting, you know, funds from the, from the Fed yet even slightly lower than that, right? So you might say, why are mortgage rates at 6.7 or 6.8? That's a big number from the 4.75 swing to the, to the 6.75 swing. Well, that's because normally banks will add on one or one and a quarter percent. But right now, the banks are adding on 2%. They're basically playing worst case scenario. The moment the Fed even says, we've stopped, we are not going to raise rates further, that gap, it's called a spread, collapses. It collapses back to what it always has been. And so without the Fed dropping rates, without the Fed doing anything to rates, if they simply indicate that they're at a plateau, you should immediately see 30-year mortgages go down. Because now no one's using the worst case scenario; they can use the normal scenario.
0: Yeah, I mean that makes sense. And what's the normal amount? You said one and a half or one
1: between what, one what point one and a quarter and one and a half is what we typically tend to see.
0: So, if what you're saying is is accurate, then you could see an immediate drop of mortgage rates by half a percent to to three quarters of a percent. Just I'd say
1: half the Fed yeah.
0: raising interest. What yeah. if they did that this time? Like again, by the time this this video goes out, I mean it's going to be a it, they may have already met. It'd be kind of fun. Just put us in a time capsule, you know, but what if they don't raise interest rates? What if the Fed takes the drastic action of saying, whoa, uh, we broke this. Maybe it's a little bit worse than we thought. I mean, again, I've seen anywhere from 180 to 200 banks being on the line of of having just massive uninsured deposits and, you know, and not being able to meet liquidity requirements. What does that look like?
1: I think it's a bad idea and I don't think the Fed's going to do it because if they do it, they're going to reignite rallies in the stock market. And if they reignite rallies, the inflation, which is coming down fair, and slower than we like, but it's coming down nicely, you're going to reignite inflation. I think that is a very big risk for the Fed to take. The Fed right now has to take risks. And, And all of the risks, all of their decisions are very risky. But I think that if they take the decision of just holding, you'll see a big, huge stock market rally, and everyone will be saying, oh, you know what? Rates are about to go down, no recession, blah, blah, blah. And the moment we do that, inflation turns right back around and starts screaming upwards.
0: What do you think about the 2%, Mark, where they're saying inflation should be at 2%? What do you think about this? Is that an arbitrary rule, or do you think that we could be okay at 4 or 6% or something higher?
1: I think it's very problematic, and I'll explain why. So, the U.S. government has $30 trillion of debt, but the Fed funds rate actually sets the standard not just for the U.S., but for the world. So the Eurozone's debt is higher than ours. So we have $30 trillion of debt there. The Eurozone's larger than the U.S., and so they've got more than $30 trillion of debt. The Japanese have huge amounts of debt, so ch- so do the Chinese. So the world banking system is based on the in the Fed funds rate of their respective banks being around that two, two, 2.5%, which is where inflation tends to be. And that is the mm. Goldilocks zone, because at that point of time, most governments can pay the interest on their debt. No one can pay debt back. I think that there's no way to pay most sovereign debt back. But I think that as long as people keep paying interest, then they can kick the can down the road. And inflation is one of those things where you need just enough of it too much inflation is bad because i mean think about it the u.s government 30 trillion dollars at some point if the inflation's at four percent and the fed funds rate is at four percent that's 1.2 trillion dollars of interest in a year well you'd have to cut social security to half and the pentagon to half and medicare to half to pay that so the, the i don't think the world functions properly when the Fed funds rate is significantly above 2%, so eventually they have to figure out how to bring it back down. Having said that, I think we can have a Fed funds rate at 2, 2.5 and inflation closer to 3%. I don't think that there is a possibility of inflation coming back to 2% for a very long time because of energy costs. So The world is running out of energy. We're in an expensive one-time transition to electric vehicles and to basically everything being um, low carbon. That is a expensive transition. It's very, very expensive. It costs tens of trillions of dollars, makes the world economy less efficient as we go through that process. All of that is going to show up in inflation. Remember, if food is expensive, it's energy. If transportation is expensive, it's energy because everything in our in our society is all based on oil. It's all based on energy and the cost of that energy, including food. And so I think you're, you're going to see inflation running hot in that three plus percent range for developed economies, and then running even hotter than that for China and India and some of the, 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 the developing world. I, I don't think there's any way to put the inflation genie completely back in the bottle. We're, we're going to have to live with it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I wonder whether this was just, uh, again, we could all play armchair cat, uh, quarterback on uh, Monday morning or whatever they call that. Monday morning quarterback, right? Uh, and say, oh, the Fed raised it too too fast and you know, they overreacted. Dun, 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 dun. End of the day, it seems like a little patience might might play out. And I think that uh, what you're telling folks is dead on accurate. I never tell somebody not to be investing. So I know that in the multifamily, you're probably dealing with bigger projects, but I'd kind of look and say, if something's flow and you can get it for cash, I'm not a big debt guy. I'm so adverse to debt. I hate debt. I know that that there's a use for it, but I just I've never seen somebody get foreclosed on that didn't have debt, so I'm like I tend to be on that side. So I say like, hey, still be buying, but for the most part, there's gonna be a lot of money on the sidelines. And when 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 the the whistle goes off, or you know the the green light gets gets played, boy, this thing's gonna take off again. I'm, and that's what I'm saying is that you don't want to miss that
1: out. I do have a tip for for your viewers. So I was speaking at a conference called the Best Ever Conference a couple of weeks ago. It was in Utah, and one of the other speakers. Uh, buys a lot of single-family homes, right? Her name's Kathy Fetke. You, I think, you know her well. Oh, I know and, Kathy. Yeah, she's right? great Yeah. So what Kathy was saying was very interesting because she does a lot of single-family purchases, and I tend to buy large multifamilies. She had some data that I want to share with your users that I think is very beneficial. She said this is an incredible time to be making cash buys, right? So the market's yes. gone down, so you're you know you're paying less than you were 12 months ago. But the, the cash buyer market, she says, it's it's gone where if there were 20 cash you know offers on a property, now there's one. And so the value of a cash purchase has dramatically increased, especially in the last three or four months. She says, you should be throwing all kinds of really stupid cash offers at people. And if you throw enough of them, somebody will accept it. Now you're getting the same price that people would have gotten four, five, six months down the line. So you're basically getting six months of additional cash flow and you're getting the price that you would have gotten at whatever the bottom might have been. So this is a great time to be making cash offers.
0: Well, Kathy's really, really smart and has been doing this a long time and knows her stuff. I happen to agree with her, but I'm going to say she's really smart. I'm a dumb lawyer who does lots of tax stuff, but I'm an avid investor and I'm still looking at it going, when I buy cash, all I care about is cash flow. So somebody could tell me all day long about this interest rate, that interest rate means nothing to me other than my competition is getting aced out. So I look at it saying, Hey, I'm the only guy that some of these folks have given off, you know, offers to. So we've been doing just fine. But, but then again, I'm a cash guy. I'm like one of those dudes, the big, the big stuff, all that multifamily, love it, Neil, but I'm smart enough to know that that's not my, that's not my lane. That's why I go to guys like you. If you like, uh, uh, crappy little houses that that people love to live in. That that's my thing. I love little single family houses, and I love it when I get you know tenants that of it in there 10 20 years. Yeah, I love those folks. Do anything I can for them, but I look at them as like you are you are my friend. You are. It's almost like they're my employee. They're you know they're paying me to be there, and I am like gonna look at it like this is just the greatest thing ever. So I am gonna do everything I can for them, and I, I I love that area. But Kathy's really really bright. So that's that's real wealth. We know those guys for years. They're fantastic. So yep. any any parting comments, Neil? We've gone way over, but I always like talking to you. So 20 minutes becomes 40 minutes becomes an hour.
1: This, in my mind, may be a great time to buy bank stocks. You know, and I'm not talking about something like First Republic, which is challenging. But I don't understand at this point why the big five banks are a discount. They all made 20 plus billion dollars in deposits in the last week. Chase got easily $40 billion. Bank of America said they got $18 billion. Wells Fargo said they got 17000000000 billion. I'm sure Citi got their own chunk of money. So their stock price has all gone down, but the deposits have all gone up by tens of billions of dollars. So if you're a, a too-big-to-fail bank, this is phenomenal news for you because, as I said, I don't believe this is the end. I believe another bank is going to fail a week from now, and then another one. Now, every time a bank fails, guess where the deposits go? They go to the too-big-to-fail banks. So every single time a bank fails over the next six months, the big banks are the ones that are going to be benefiting from this. So it's a tremendous time in my mind to get a huge discount off of the price from, let's say, four weeks ago on one of the big banks. Obviously, the big banks are not going to go out of business because if they do, then the entire economy is out of business. So I'd say City, Chase, Wells Fargo, who else? Um, I'm forgetting one. Um, of the big banks, basically the I big agree. four banks, this may be a great time to buy their stock.
0: I agree with you. People liked them before this was going on and uh, at a higher price and now they're on sale. So you're, you have to channel your your inner Warren Buffett of uh, you got to be greedy when everybody else is fearful. And it is a little bit freaky to stick yourself out there, but do your homework. But I look at it the same way. I remember when the casinos were all getting beat down here and everybody's like, yeah. oh my gosh, you know, yeah. during the recession, it's like, it's, just a matter of time. They print money, you know. Like they're they're money making machines. Yep. You might yep. want to go buy some of those real cheap, and you are like, is really this cheap? There must be something wrong with it. It's like nobody else wants it, so why do I want it? You might want to be doing that with some of your bank stocks. I think is what you are saying, and I, I I tend to to think that's wise as well. All right. So uh, anything else, or are we good, Neil?
1: No, I I just want to say this is actually a good time to be that Warren Buffett person. This this is. Bargain time coming up in the next six months. Be very active. Be reading a lot of news because normally news really doesn't have as much value as we attach to it. But right now I keep Barron's market watch, Wall Street Journal continuously open. And I'm one of those people that firstly, I don't have any social media apps. I don't connect with social media. I'm not on Twitter, but right now I'm paying attention because I think the opportunity to make money right now is significantly greater than it normally is.
0: I agree with you. Hey, if somebody wants to follow you, speaking of how do they get a hold of you?
1: Well, it's easy, actually. I'm the only Neil Bawa on the World Wide Web. So simply type in N-E-A-L space B-A-W-A and hit enter. We do uh, offer about 20 uh, data-driven webinars on our website, multifamilyu.com. That's multifamily followed by the letter u.com. Last year, we had 26,000 people register for our webinars. And as you can imagine, there's a webinar about the banking system coming up in a few days here. So check out multifamilyu.com.
0: Perfect. We'll send them your way. We'll put you in the show notes. We'll make sure that anybody can find you real easy. You're always a fantastic guest to have on. Thanks again, Neil. And we'll have you again as this thing. Uh, it, we'll, we'll continue to watch what's going on. And I'm sure that there'll be some more breaking that the Fed causes and we'll we'll get on and see what the opportunities are. But certainly sounds like for those that have the, uh, the backbone and the skill, this is a great opportunity.
1: Sounds good. Thanks for having me on again.